Here we go, Monday night. Hear the music. Time for Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Great show on tap for you tonight. We can't really dilly dally here, Ira, because we have a great guest coming on in just a minute. He's Brian Hoke, uh, Major League uh, MLB.com beat reporter for the Yankees. He's going to be here in just a minute or two. Yeah, he wrote um, 62, Aaron Judge, the New York Yankees, and the pursuit of greatness, and the whole story about last year. If you remember, at the end of the year, when Judge was at first in the middle of the season, it looked like, oh, it's an inevitability that he was going to have 60, we could have 70, and then the last couple of weeks, I mean, I was going, you saw that whole week I was in New York, and I went to the two Pirate games, and I went to the four Red Sox games, and it just took forever to get that. It shows how hard it is to get that. 62 was hard, and the fact that he got it was was pretty great for the Yankees, pretty great for Judge, and then, of course, he signed that huge contract made at the end of the year, and was made captain, and Brian has been covering the Yankees for 15 years. Can't wait to have him on, and this book is one of the top sellers now. Talk about the Yankees. Yeah, we got plenty to talk about with him um, as Yankees. He's kind of at a crossroads right now with their team without him. Uh, where have you been? Just watching a lot, of, a lot of Wimbledon, right? I tell you what, every morning it's in Wimbledon. I can't wait to talk about it. I, I love it. I'll be there next year. I cannot miss it. But it was, it's been a great tournament, some great matches. You have uh, star players like Djokovic, who's going for all-time records uh, against some of the younger players like Carlos Alcaraz and Hoga Room. So it's really a, a meeting of the guards of the old-timers and the new ones playing. And it's so much, so much excitement. And uh, don't forget, you can follow us anywhere across social media at Ira on Sports. We should have uh, Brian Hoke on here in just a minute. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about here before we get to him? Just a story that just broke about Pat Fitzgerald, uh, coach of Northwestern. There was a hazing incident at the team uh, at Northwestern. He's been a longtime coach, over a decade, been the coach there and done an amazing job with the program in terms of Northwestern, the most success they've ever had. And uh, there was a report came out and he was suspended for two weeks. Uh, then it came out, the school newspaper did further reporting and it just he was just fired just now. It was just reported. So uh, Pat Fitzgerald is gone as the coach at Northwestern. You think NFL's next up? I don't know. I mean, it's weird. You know, some of these coaches that because uh, Mike Leach was also that incident with uh, in when he was at Texas Tech for hazing and those type of things. He was fired, but then was able to coach again. Washington State uh, came back and coached at Mississippi State. And then so there's coaches. But Mark Mangino was a coach at Kansas, had the same type of situation, was fired, never got another head coaching job. The coach of South Florida um, never got another coach head coaching job. So we'll have to see how things break down. But he still he was he was a legend at, at, at Northwestern. He was a two time all. American linebacker, defensive player of the year, uh, been there, coach, been offered many other jobs. People thought he was going to get the Bears job many years and stayed at Northwestern, and now look what happens. So. I do think we have uh, Brian on the line. Brian Hoke joining us, uh, MLB.com beat reporter for the New York Yankees. Follow him on Twitter at Brian Hoke, H O C H. Brian, thank you so much for joining us here on Iron Sports. You got it. Happy to be on with you. Hey, so um, I'm Mike, a, a lifelong Yankees fan, so I got to you know preface it with that. I grew up on Long <laughs> okay. Island. I'll, I'll ask you a couple questions first, just about the team in general, before uh, Ira gets to your book. What is the latest on Aaron Judge? Because this seems to be like one of the quietest injuries I've heard. There's really no timetable here, and the Yankees are kind of flailing without him. That's it. Yeah, and it's uh, certainly not for lack of questions. Uh, that is the question that we've been asking more than anything, is that when is Aaron Judge going to get back? And uh, the Yankees have been pretty secretive with a timetable, which I think speaks to... Uh, the severity of yes. the injury, and so he's been uh, playing catch again and hitting off a tee, which is a good sign. But until he really gets out there and runs at full force, uh, I, I, he's not going to be able to get back on the field here. He mentioned uh, going out there and running at ten percent is not going to help anybody, and so that's kind of a gauge of where he is right now. I think that if they can get him up to fifty or sixty percent, 
he's going to have to play through some pain here this year. And I think that, you know, they can get creative with what they do to, to get him on the field. Maybe you get him some special uh, orthotics you can put in your shoe. But uh, it, it's going to bother him through the rest of this year and probably won't get better until the offseason, really. So uh, I, I talked to a sports orthopedic surgeon now here in New York, and uh, he said the best case would probably be first week of August, uh, given the, the information we have. So, you know, fingers crossed, I think, because obviously – this offense has cratered without judge. I think it speaks to how valuable he is to this team in so many different ways, but uh, they have not been the same team without him, no doubt about it. No, that's what I was going to say next. The team batting average for the Yankees, third lowest in the league. The only teams hitting worse are Oakland and Detroit, and they're just not you know, not the right franchises you want to be lumped in with. I mean, me from a fan's perspective, Brian, I think the season's a wash if we don't get, uh, if we don't get judge back. I can't see this team even making the playoffs, let alone making a run. Well, they may make the playoffs, but it's really hard for me to entertain an idea of them winning a championship if Judge doesn't come back. And it's just because he's so valuable to this team. He helps them on offense, on defense, all the things he does in the clubhouse. You know, he's doing the best he can in his role as a captain being around the team right now, but there's only so much you can do from the bench. And so, um, you know, it's easy to point to the Judge injury and say, well, that's why the Yankees aren't winning. But they have a whole team of other guys who are just not producing here. And I'm looking at John Carlos Stanton and DJ LeMahieu and Anthony Rizzo and uh, Josh Donaldson. I mean, you can kind of point your finger all around the field and say, this guy needs to pick it up, or that guy needs to pick it up, and uh, this is an opportunity where one of those team, one of those players, needs to strap it on and, and lead this team. And Judge did that so magnificently all of last year, wire to wire, especially in the second half when it seemed like guys were getting hurt or underperforming. Judge was the reason they went to the postseason at all last year. I'm convinced of that. So uh, you may be onto something there. I think uh, it's going to be an uphill battle here if they don't get him back and. Uh, still people around the team are optimistic that he will play again this year, and it's just a matter of when. So the um, the, <laughs> the job to straighten this hitting hitting uh, lineup out has been filled. Sean Casey uh, announced earlier today as the new, uh, new hitting coach for the Yankees. You want to tell us a little bit about Sean? A lot of people probably remember him as a player, but I, I, you know, I don't know much about his coaching background. Yeah, well, that's because there is on the speak-up. Yeah. <laughs> He's been on that MLB network now for 15 years, so uh, he is coming in kind of just to see how this goes. And it's, it's a, a really interesting experiment for me um, that the Yankees are doing this because Brian Cashman has never fired a coach or a manager in season during his 25 years at the helm. And he comes from the background of George Steinbrenner, of course, who used to do it all the time. <laughs> and, uh, pitching coach is gone. And today the hitting coach is gone. And now the manager's gone. That, that was life under George Steinbrenner. And it's been much more... Um, I don't want to say calm because nothing with the Yankees is ever calm, but I guess uh, more consistent in a, in a lot of ways. You know, they, they do fire coaches, but uh, they, they tend to wait until after the season to make any changes. And so uh, I think that this is a move that speaks to the urgency and, and maybe some desperation here of just we got to try something. we got to do something on the Yankees' part because otherwise they, they see their season uh, going down the drain here. So, this is definitely uh, it's it's. Uh, I'm curious to see how it plays out. Me too. Uh, Casey, Casey, of course, does have a bad big league background. He hit over 300 in the big leagues, but that doesn't necessarily always mean you can teach it to somebody. And so I, I, I'm curious to see how this this works here, going from the TV studio to the dugout. But uh, the Yankees did try this a few years ago. Aaron Boone had never coached or managed in any 
level, and so it's clearly something the Yankees are comfortable with. Uh, before I turn it over to Ira, you want to give us a little bit of info on the Yankees, uh, you know, top draft picks that they've selected over the past few days, George Lombard Jr., uh, Kyle Carr, and then arguably one of the best baseball names ever, Rock Riggio. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll tell you what, that last kid, uh, I was watching some highlights, and apparently he made the highlights real last year because he is a little bit of a hot dog. Yeah, yeah he, he was kind of strutting around the bases, and there's some personality there. And I, I, the comparison that uh, somebody gave to me was that he's a little Dustin Pedroia-like. In it. But they, I watched that video, and I said, I never saw Pedroia do that. He's kind of pumping <laughs> his fist, and he goes around the bases and doing a little stutter step around third base. So I don't know how that's going to play Maybe in the more Papelbon-esque. Maybe, yeah, maybe. But, <laughs> Not uh, a pitcher, Clint but... Clint Frazier a little bit, a little yeah. shade to Clint Frazier in there. Uh, so I am curious to see how that goes in pro ball, but uh, yeah, they, the Yankees, uh, and I, I, I'll i be perfectly honest, I haven't seen any of these kids play yet, So, uh, but you know, that, that's the same thing every year. You uh, you get all that new talent in the pipeline, and uh, some of them are going to make it, and some of them aren't, and we'll see where how it all shakes out. Ira, what do you have for Brian? So, Brian, I loved reading your book this weekend. I was on the beach looking, reading it, and I can't tell you how many people came up to me, you know, asking about it, saying they wanted to read it. So, I guess down here in South Florida, you're going to get a lot, so sell a lot of copies, a lot of interest, a lot of Yankee fans down here. But it, right. it really centers around the 62 and the home run record. And just for the listeners, just give an idea. In 1927, Ruth had 60 home runs. I think you said in the book, 8,000 people watched that. And then you had the 61, and then you have Sosa, McGuire, and all the other stuff. Sort of talk about what made this judge and what you what made 62 just so everybody was following at the end of the season. Yeah, it really became a phenomenon. And it's one of the coolest things that I've ever had the opportunity to cover. And you touched on it there. And it's just the, the majesty of these milestones. The record for a long time, 60 in Babe Ruth. That was the magic number. And then, of course, we know in 1961, Roger Maris hit 61. And that stood up until the late 90s, the early 2000s, when steroids kind of made a mockery of the record book. And so, uh, you know, we all watched with our eyes the Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa and Barry Bonds home run chases. And if you ask me today who's the, who owns the home run record, I still say Barry Bonds at 73 because it happened. I, I, I'm not in the, uh, the habit of erasing history, but I just put it in a different box than I do Roger Maris. And I think that a lot of fans feel that way. And so I think that's what made last year so special was watching a guy like Judge who does it the right way, did it clean, uh, went out there and broke and pursued and broke that record. And it's just so perfect that you've got these three players in Ruth, Maris, and Judge, all of whom played for the same team, the Yankees, played the same position, right field, in the same city in different eras, and they've all now... Uh, held this record in sequence of 60 to 61 to 62. So that's really the connection that I wanted to explore in this book. And, uh, it, it uses the home run chase of last year, which of course was exciting. We all watched it. It was it was fantastic. But it uses that to really branch off and allows us to kind of talk baseball and get into a lot of different discussions around um, baseball and baseball history, which is something that I'm super passionate about. And I love doing the research for this project. Even got the the meal that Roger Maris ate the night of his 61st home run. So I, I really did a deep dive during the offseason, not into just Judge, but uh, into Maris and baseball history. Yeah, and you mentioned he, the meal, and then he went right then to Mantle's uh, bedside because Mantle was in the hospital. So I didn't realize that. When you mentioned he was having dinner, I'm like, why? where's Mantle? And then you said he was in the hospital when he hit 61. That's right, because if you remember, the story of 61 is that Mantle and Maris were going back and forth. And we have all seen the Billy Crystal movie, and 
Uh, there were so many fans that wanted either Babe Ruth to hold the record forever or if somebody was going to break it, they, they were rooting against Maris because they wanted Mantle to be the guy. And so, yeah, we have in the book about uh, Mantle actually goes and gets a shot, uh, you know, basically amphetamine shot into his hip there, uh, 1961 medical technology. And, of course, it, uh, it got inflamed and infected, and he had a horrible wound in his uh, hip that really took him out of the home run chase. And so, yeah, he's hospitalized as and watching on television as Roger Maris makes history and passes Babe Ruth. So, um, yeah, looking up all those details and getting that, and uh, I spoke to two of the surviving members of the 1961 Yankees and Tony Kubek and Bobby Richardson. So, uh, yeah, I really did my homework on this, and I'm proud of how it came out. I loved your insight into Aaron Judge growing up. He wasn't on travel teams, didn't just play baseball like <laughs> all the time. He literally was a three-sport star, football, basketball, baseball, and, and was in Linden, sort of under the radar of the sports world. Yeah, Linden, California, which is a very small town that until Judge started playing right field for the New York Yankees, I would guess that only a handful of people know about it. You know, it's mostly known for... It's the cherry capital of the world, uh, self-described, and so it's in it's in the San Francisco Bay Area, but it's inland. I mean, this is very rural, agricultural country, and uh, you know the stories that I got about Judge's upbringing. Obviously, he was always a physical specimen. He had the size. Um, he's biracial. He's adopted, so of course he was going to stick out in a small town. And in a lot of ways, uh, he was kind of this Clark Kent Superman uh, growing up in. A, a, in a small town, in a rural environment, and everybody knew him, of course, and everybody knew about his physical talents. There were t-ball teams that would <laughs> refuse to play the infield because he hit the ball too darn hard, and they were afraid of him. Uh, but, uh, yes, the three-sports star, and he was recruited to play college football and probably could have played in the NFL, honestly, with the size and the speed he has. But baseball was his passion, and he, always, he talks about loving the – battle between the pitcher and the catcher, the kind of mental chess match there that you just don't get in these other sports. I mean, in football, in basketball, you don't you don't really get that, where you're trying to outthink somebody. And so uh, that was really where Judge's passion was. He loved baseball and wanted to pursue baseball as a career, and it, there was no lock. Um, you know, there were people who scouted him back then, and they, they referred to him as a newborn giraffe, and a guy who was kind of gawky and awkward and uh, still trying to find his way. But obviously in pro ball, uh, he, something started to click, and uh, it, once once it started to come, it was a fast rise to New York. Right, and you mentioned about how he went though to Fresno State, and that's not like the and so he starts at Fresno State and just developed at that school, and that's why sort of we had this whole with the contract issue because he was in college ball for three years and then was in the minors for a couple, so really the contract he signed was going to be his final contract. But it was that time at Fresno State, which he, when you say in the book, he loved being at Fresno State, loved playing college baseball. Oh, yeah, no, I mean, and I've talked to him about his, his college experience, and he had fun in college. You know, he, he obviously being the, the child of two educators, he had to focus on his studies, and he wasn't going out partying every single night, but he had fun, and uh, I think that college baseball was where he really kind of started to see his dream coming through there, and, um, you know, he, it didn't, wasn't until later that he moved to the outfield. Uh, that's where he moved to the outfield, because he was a pitcher and a first baseman in high school, and so that's kind of where we see the building blocks of Aaron Judge coming together. And one great anecdote I can tell you from the book is that at Fresno State, his coach had a rule where if you talk to the press, the student newspaper or whatever it was, and you use the words me, my, or I, you got, you got fined a dollar. <laughs> and, and you have to pay the coach a dollar. And so I think that's where 
and over his three years at Fresno State, Judge never lost a single dollar to that. So I think that's where you get that kind of team-first mentality. It was drilled into him from a very early age, and certainly as a media member who's covered him since day one, literally, um, you know, he, he's not the kind of guy who's going to stand up there and say, hey, look at me, look what I did. That's never him. It's, it's look what we did. Uh, we need to do this together as a team. You know, we're going to fast track right now to the 2022 season when before the season started, he rejected the seven-year $213 million offer from the Yanks and then said, I'm not going to negotiate during the season. And then he was upset, though, when he sort of said, look, we're going to put it on the back burner. We're just going to play ball. But then Cashman ran out and said, oh, this is what we offered him. This is what he turned down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he thought that that was going to be kept quiet and in-house. And that's something that, that's a theme that with Aaron, that he's very private and he likes to keep things, especially business of baseball, he wants to keep that close to the vest. He'll, he'll talk to you day in, day out about, uh, you know, what happens between the white lines and making a play in the outfield or, or hitting a ball. But, uh, yeah, that kind of stuff, the personal, the off-field stuff, he, he is secretive about that. And so um, I think that you have to definitely earn his trust to get there and, I think that the Yankees uh, lost some of his trust there because, uh, you know, there is a difference of opinion on how that was uh, negotiated. And I know the Cashman told me that they had been upfront with Judge and his agent about we are going to announce this to the press. But uh, Judge argues with that and says he was never told that. So that, that did start a little bad blood there, and I think it simmered throughout the whole season. And, and maybe it provided some motivation, too, that, hey, I'll show you. I'm going to go out and have a great year, and you're going to pay me. Uh, I think that... That might have been part of the equation, too. He'll never admit to that, but that's kind of the feeling I got, just uh, being a fly on the wall. And then you talk in the book about John Carlos Stanton, who we're familiar with down here in South Florida. I um, remember he had 59 home runs one year also, but having him in that lineup that year, I mean, that one game I was at the Pirate game when he hit 60, remember he was, he, his judge was the one there down four runs, hit a home run in the ninth inning, then Stanton hit the grand slam to take it. So it's really, I think, that helped him when you, in the book you bring out how Stanton being hit him behind him helped him throughout the year. Absolutely. And if John Carlos was healthy for the entire year, it would have been fun to see if they could have both gone after this record and been like the modern-day Maris and Mantle. Unfortunately, that didn't work out. And uh, Giancarlo, the story of his career has been uh, dealing with injuries. But when he's in there, man, uh, he hits the ball. It, it is ridiculous. He hit a ball at Yankee Stadium against the Cubs last week, by the way, and I'm, I'm flashing forward. But he hit the facing of the upper deck in left field, and I've never seen a ball hit up there and, uh, by anybody, including Judge. And I asked Stan about it. I said, have you ever even – gone up there during batting practice and he kind of laughed and he's like no <laughs> so uh so i thought that was funny but uh, yeah no I, I think that having stanton who had been through a similar home run chase and not necessarily the uh attention that was paid to judge because it's new york city because it's the yankees but uh doing it down there in miami i think that stanton had been through it and stanton felt the pressure at the end and he fell short but he did have an opportunity to hit 60 or 61 and uh, wasn't able to do it so I think he could understand and be kind of a sounding board for Judge throughout that whole chase he certainly leaned on him leaned on Anthony Rizzo uh, leaned on Garrett Cole to some extent uh, just as veterans who have been around the game for a while have seen a lot of baseball and could kind of help guide him through it even though when he's up there in the batter's box nobody can help you except yourself. Well, a year ago, the Yankee season was completely different. They were 64-28, and 28, had a 60-and-a-half game lead. Uh, Stanton was the MVP of the All-Star game, and Judge is nearing almost 40 home runs. Um, it was that great start of the season. The team is doing well. Judge is doing well. And then it sort of all fell apart, not for Judge because he kept hitting the runs, but the team started to fall apart. 
Yeah, no, they dealt with so many injuries. And Cashman talks in the book about how that April, May, June was the healthiest run he's ever experienced as a GM. And that's why, you know, on paper, that's what you dream of. You, you write out your lineup in spring training and you say, all right, if all these guys stay healthy, we are going to be great and we're going to win the World Series. And uh, I think that for three months there, they just had magic. And then that kind of turned into a nightmare in July. And so. It was basically you had the last man standing with Judge in the middle of an MVP year trying to drag his team toward the postseason while everybody else was kind of scuffling and uh, a bunch of guys were getting on the IL and you had to basically rely on your second line. And so I, I think that's what really stood out to me about that season was it's not Judge just chasing a record and swinging for the fences. It was him trying to be a complete player on offense and defense, taking his walks, making plays in the outfield, because his focus, and I think this helped him in a lot of ways, was it was never on, I am going to break Roger Maris's record. It was always on, what can I do every single day to help the Yankees win a game? And I think that simplified things for him, and it certainly endeared him to his teammates. And I think that may be part of why uh, the, the national attention really was so positive for Judge. I, I never heard anybody rooting against Judge the way they did against Maris. And, uh, it, it seemed like everybody was overwhelmingly positive when, when Judge was in pursuit of this record. Well, I was down in St. Louis when McGuire had 61 and 62, and when Judge had 58 and 59 in Milwaukee, I think one of the problems he had, you know, playing the Pirates, they really didn't, they pitched, they tried, but he, he got some good shots against him trying to hit that. But the Red Sox, nobody in the Red Sox was was trying to break the record, too. And I think the Cubs pitchers, because Sosa was also on their team, I think at that aspect of it, that they had Sosa, they had another player, they were pitching right. to McGuire, and the Cardinal pitchers were pitching to Sosa. That helped McGuire and Sosa, whereas really it was it was sort of when he was so close to that, and people were like, "He's going to get seventy. He's going to get seventy-three. Those last three were really, really hard to get. Yeah, and I think it, it, they've been hard historically for all of these guys who have chased this record. And so I think that uh, that's why we examine the history there. And it's like people have been here before, and it never gets any easier. And I think that as the attention continues to grow and the focus is there and the spotlight, I mean, at Yankee Stadium last year, I've never seen anything like it. You had. 45,000 people coming to the ballpark, and when, every time Judge would come up, everybody in the building stood. Everybody reached for their cell phone. They're, they're recording it, and they're quiet. The quiet part was the weirdest thing because it was kind of like uh, watching a golf tournament where <laughs> yes. everybody's and the, the guy is trying to tee off, and, and, uh, and there was one game where Judge hits a double down the left field line. I remember this so vividly, and he's running into second base, and the crowd kind of goes, oh, at a home game at Yankee Stadium. And it was kind of like, wow, this is, this is something totally different than I've ever seen. And it was also weird also that in some of the games, it was almost like the fans were rooting for the teams to tie it up in the ninth or take the lead so the Yankees then would have a chance to bat in the ninth when Judge's uh, number you know, was in the lineup for the ninth I'm inning. Glad, I'm glad you mentioned that because, yes, they, they really, that really did happen. It was uh, teams, you know, the fans were sticking around just in case Judge was going to get another uh, chance to hit. And so if, if there was a lead blown in the late innings, you know, you typically would be upset about that. But there was almost kind of a little, yeah, but if he blows the lead, 
then Judge is going to get another chance, so let's stick around for that. The other part of the book I, I loved was when you talked about the catching the ball and how the ball, and you mentioned in 61, I guess Maris said to the fan, he goes, put it up for auction and someone I know is going to buy it, so just make some money off it. I was in uh, left field when McGuire hit 62, um, I, but it was under, of course, it went into the bullpen, so I, I didn't get it. It wasn't close to it. But you talk about some of that in terms of, of how the games, how they gave the tickets out and actually who caught 62. Yeah, and actually, that's one of the most interesting parts of the book to me, is the guy who caught 62. His name's Corey Humans, and of course, he hit it down in uh, Texas, and there's a guy who lives in the suburbs of Dallas, and the, the general media spin on it, the, after it, that, that I saw, and everything that I read at the time was, oh, there's a rich guy, and he caught the ball, and he's just going to get richer. He's probably going to sell it for $3 million, and, like, and I feel like that really fueled the fan reaction toward him, and uh, I did a complete 180 after talking to him and getting to know him a little bit and hearing his story. He wasn't, I mean, yes, he worked for an investment company, but he was kind of in middle management and uh, certainly wasn't like a, the, the president of the company and uh, drove a kind of modest four-door sedan and lived in an apartment. And he caught this ball and um, obviously it's life-changing money. And I, I, I just kind of the, the decisions he wrestled with after uh, catching that ball, his life completely changed, and it was fun and delirious for about 10 minutes, and then reality starts to set in because uh, his, na- his name and address are out there on the Internet. People are uh, – his wife called him and said, hey, there's some weird people on our lawn, and I don't know if they're supposed to be here, and he's kind of thinking ahead, like, I don't own a gun. I don't, you know, I don't have a knife. Like, how am I going to defend myself if I have to? Is somebody going to try and, like, rob me for this ball? And so uh, there, there's a lot of wild thoughts that go through your mind when you catch a ball like that. And, and I think, uh, you know, we all dream about getting a lottery ticket, right? And I, I think we don't think about, all right, once I get the winning lottery ticket, then what do I do? And so uh, it, it really kind of made me uh, understand a little bit more of what he was going through during that time. And uh, I, I think that that was definitely a, a part of the book where I thought I knew that story and only by talking to him did I get a completely different story and a better understanding of it. And the one great thing about your book and the final question I was going to ask is about the contract at the end. After he did that, then it's sort of like, is he going to stay? Is he going to San Francisco? Is it San Diego? And I've been waiting for someone to really break that down. And and if if people just want to read the book for the final 50 pages of the book where you went through the whole contract negotiations, it was really interesting in terms of how he decided to go and stay with the Yankees and not go to San Francisco and not go to San Diego. And you mentioned that Tampa even put an offer out there. So Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that hasn't been previously reported so that was new reporting there that i was able to uncover in the course of this so but thank you for saying that that's awesome um yeah i think that uh, it, it really is fascinating the business of baseball and I, I was able to talk to all of the key players involved there at the end to kind of paint the picture and, and what really went through his mind and uh in real time i had thought it was probably about an 80 percent chance that judge was going to stay i felt that he wanted to stay in new york he, he had unfinished business there but once you reach free agency, you never know. I mean, we saw it with Freddie Freeman uh, a couple of years ago here where I thought he was going to be an Atlanta Brave for life, and then it didn't work out that way, and now he's playing for the Dodgers. So uh, I think that nothing's ever a guarantee once you get to free agency. And a judge, in his mind, he never wanted to look back with any regrets. He, he did not want to have any stone unturned there and, and kind of be looking back three or four years down the line and saying, hmm, I wonder if I had gone to the Giants what that would look like or uh, you know, I, sh- I probably should have gone on that ballpark trip and done the whining and dining. So the whining and dining is the fun part. Sure, show me the ballpark, show me the facilities. Uh, then the, the Padres came in, 
with ridiculous money, 14 years, $414 million. And, uh, and at that point, you have to get on the plane and at least talk to them and go <laughs> go listen to the offer. But at the end of all of that, um, it, it's crazy money no matter what location you were going to pick. And I think for Judge, the pull of the Bay Area wasn't as great as he thought it was going to be. And so he and his wife got together and they looked at each other and they said, you know, we belong in New York. We're Yankees. And so uh, once they figured that out, that, then the rest was just kind of uh, hammering out the uh, the logistics of the deal. And Hal Steinbrenner did it uh, on the phone directly with Judge and said, all right, what's it going to take to keep you? And Judge said, I would like a ninth year. And he said, done. Fine. So we'll send over the paperwork. It's done. Right. So once he decided... It was a Yankee. It was easy. <laughs> Brian, I absolutely loved your book. It's I encourage anyone, Yankee fan, non-Yankee fan, baseball fan, get the book. Uh, you can get Amazon, Barnes & Noble, everything. It's called 62, uh, Aaron Judge, the New York Yankees, and the Pursuit of Greatness. So, Brian, thanks so much, and enjoy watching the uh, Home Run Hitting Contest and the All-Star Game coming up the next two days. Yeah, you got it. Thanks, guys, for having me. I appreciate it. Brian Hoke. You can follow him on Twitter, at Brian Hoke, H-O-C-H. Thank you so much for popping on Ira on Sports. Speaking of baseball, baseball draft's underway. It doesn't get near the fanfare of the NBA draft or the NFL draft, but I still love it. I follow it intently, and uh, we got to see. It was pretty predictable how the first few picks were going to go. Well, the Pirates picked Paul Skeens, uh, the number one pitcher from LSU. Fantastic pitcher. And, then the, and also then the LSU outfielder was the second, so it was sort of one of those like where they were both. I think people are saying, why doesn't the baseball draft allow trading of picks that we have in basketball and football? That might get more excitement if you're allowed to trade the picks, but at least from this sense, you know, the, it, it, the, pit, the players it seems teams that were drafted, especially the college players, look like they're a year away from like you're going to see them in a uniform, which is pretty good. So that was exciting. Uh, like you said, All-Star Game tomorrow. The starting pitchers have been uh, d- determined. Garrett Cole is going to face off against Zach Gallen, and I've been preaching this for three years now. The Marlins should have never traded Zach Gallen for Jazz Chisholm. Jazz is decent. He's always hurt, and who doesn't need an ace like Zach Gallen? I, I think they lost that trade. Yeah, and Garrett Cole was known as being the best player to ever to never start an All-Star Game, so as a former pilot, Byron, who, Byron fan who traded uh, Garrett Cole. It'll be it'll be great to see Garrett out there and uh, for the game tomorrow. Again, the juice of the game isn't there as so much as it used to be because there's so much interleague play. There's interleague play. So it used to be years ago you would never see the American League play the National League. Now yeah. you see it every single day of the week. So it doesn't have that I guess by the 7th, 8th, and ninth inning not so much excitement. And remember some of these players they used to play like Pete Rose would play 9 innings. I mean you would have these players yeah. that would play the whole game. Now they're out by the 3rd, 4th. Yeah, last year was a little underwhelming because they brought in you know, four great closers each to close the game. <laughs> there was like no action at all. They were just striking everyone out. Home run derbies tonight. I'm trying to make some money off this, Ira. I think Luis Robert, he's one of the longest shots on the board at plus 850. I think he's got as good a chance as anybody else, but it's hard to not bet Pete Alonso here you know, coming off uh, two wins in the last three years. Right, because then Alonzo takes it seriously. Like, I this think is, one this of, is his Super Bowl. Yeah, so he views this as important. And, and remember, we didn't ask questions to Brian about Judge. I was there in Miami when Judge uh, won the home hitting contest there. Actually hurt his shoulder in the contest, so it hurt him the rest of the year when he was a rookie. But Alonzo takes this seriously, so I think he's the, as much as, you know, it's plus 300, plus 350, I still think he's the bet because he's just, he's, he knows what to do. Yeah, these <laughs> other guys are like joking with their family. He's eating power bars and hitting a thousand he's, in the locker, yeah. right? This is this is serious. He's the one well, taking it seriously. The first two that he won, he made more in the home run derby than his contract with the, with the Mets. He was on a rookie deal, making no money. So I I get him for taking it seriously. Then Victor Wembanyama, the new wonderkind, I guess, of the NBA. He's on the court. We get to see him play. 
Friday we saw him play. He was terrible. Two for 13, <laughs> one for six from three, nine points, eight boards, three assists, five blocks. He got dunked on. It looked disastrous. People said he's probably a bust. He's terrible. He's this. The number three pick, Brandon Miller, was playing for Charlotte. Didn't look much better himself. Five for 15, 16 points. But then in game two, that was last night, when Manana scored 27 points, 12 points, three blocks. He was tremendous doing everything out there. And you look at him and you're like, wait, 19, he's going to be superstar. He's going to be great. Like it was, that's where, it, the fact that in two days he was able to turn around that so much, amazing. And then we start talking about Britney. You know, the fact that Britney Spears, I just want to talk about this for a second in terms of Britney Spears, if, if someone was under a rocket and didn't hear what happened, is Britney Spears ran after Victor Manana to try to like get a picture with them or something, but she has her team of security. He has his whole team. So he runs up and one of her security guys hit Britney's arm, which hit her in the face, and that became a big scandal. But the fact is, I I blame of anyone. Victor didn't touch anybody. He's just walking, and, and I I just said if she has her whole security team, and you're telling me that her security's never done this to any of her fans that would run up to him. But the, I thought it was pretty cool that he's so popular that Brit, Britney Spears is gonna run up trying to talk to him and get hit in the face for that. We had Britney Spears and Wembenyama news this week, and also Tom Brady. Maybe dating Kim Kardashian. These oh, are getting no, weird. No, no, These I'm are getting going. weird in sports. Uh, any other summer league action you've been looking at? It's. I, I'll tell you what. Jabari Smith for Houston was uh, was last year. He was a rookie. He had 38 points. He looks great. Cam, the, the, the rookies for Houston, Dari Easton, are the second year the players that play. Cam Whitmore. Houston's with now they brought in Van Fleet and they brought in Dylan Brooks. Here's a team that could be. I mean, it's going to be good next year. The Heat. Orlando Robinson. Now he played last year in a two-way where he was playing in Sioux Falls and then he came up and played for the Heat. He had 38 points. This is that year where they make that step. Jovic has actually looked good in games. And I did the one game basketball played the rookie they drafted from UCLA. I thought he was fantastic. Um, what other player was Chet Holmgren for Oklahoma City last year where he was the second pick in the draft, was injured, didn't play, but he's now back healthy for Oklahoma City. He looks he great looks, until he got hurt. And, and, and he, he's, he's looked so. So there's this is, you know, they're playing all this week. Now, when we honest, they're going to play anymore, but you don't watch it to see how your team, how the Heat does. Just look for certain players and will they fit in with the team because I think teams now are more willing to bring up that extra piece to come in there and someone like, look, if the Heat are trade their entire team they're going to need Orlando Robinson to play well so Ira so the talk of the town um, for really what is it two weeks now has been we got to get Dame Lillard into a heat uniform you might be saying pump the brakes here not so fast I don't know if Dame's the right fit well anyway First of all, Bob, we had Bob Whitson on last week. And if, if you have a chance, you haven't listened to the interview, go on our SoundCloud, iTunes, and listen to the interview. Because it was absolutely amazing interview. Because he's the one, many years ago, that traded Clyde Drexler, who was the last great player. And if you look, 11, he, Drexler played 12 years. Lillard's been there 11. They were about the same age. And Drexler said, I want to be traded. Same thing like Lillard did. And Drexler goes, I want to go to a bad team because I want to score a lot of points. And then they convinced him to go, they convinced him to go to Houston, where he actually then won a title. So that was what Exciting. So you hear about that story, and also when he traded for Pippen, when Pippen didn't want to go there, and also he did make the comment that he thinks that some teams value younger players more than they value older players. So it was a great interview for someone who actually was in the decision, was the general manager of the Portland Trailblazers, and had to make this call. My comment about, I just, I want to say this, Damian Lillard, we, if he could get him, I'm all for it. However, I would not trade the entire team and all your draft picks for him. He's been 22 and 39 in playoffs. He has four series wins, eight series losses. So remember, he's 22 and 39. Bam was 30 and 31. He is going to be 33 years old. I know he averaged 30 points a game last year, but when he used to play 82 games a year, the last few years, it's only been in their 60s. Last year was 58 games. Year before was 29. He's the highest paid player in the league. 
I just don't know if it's worth like giving everything up for him. I mean, they, he has this reputation of being game time, the most clutch. He's won all these. He has done nothing. Never been, been to one conference final and he got swept. So I just I'm pumping the brakes. I th- I would like I want to see how this plays out, but I think the Heat are playing it well. Like were there, I do not think that Pat Riley is going to mortgage the future to get him. I think it's a game of chicken. He keeps saying he wants to go to the Heat. There's no other offer. So we'll see what happens. But I trust that Pat Riley is going to make the right decision in this. Seven thirty eight. It's Ira on Sports True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsama. One thing that was kind of like, I don't know if the word's tampering or, or, you know, but his agent came out and said, like, I told other teams not even to bid. He wants to go to the Heat. That's really bad from Portland's point of view. I'm surprised they didn't petition the league, or maybe they did, to say, like, you need to tell this guy to shut up. We want other trade offers than one suitor. Right. I mean, he was running around to other teams in the league trying to make these deals. And this is one thing. Now, Portland, uh, Joe Cro- the Cronin, the general manager today, said, look, we also hope that we can convince, look, we have Scoot Henderson. We have this great young team. We want Damon to come back. We want him to play here. So this, I think when this first was announced, I think people thought this was going to happen real fast. And now Portland just said, this is something that's going to drag on months. There is no, in, there's no urgency to get this done. This season doesn't start for months, for like for like three, four months. So the point is, I, we're not going to talk about this every single week, and maybe one day you'll turn on your your phone's going to ring, it'll be like <laughs> trade. But I I, get, I think this is something that will take some time. So the NBA instituted something that is not in American sports. This is a European soccer thing, where they've in season tournaments. I have no idea how this is going to work. I know it's going to be Tuesday and Friday nights. What is going on here with I've this? I've listened to so many sports shows on this, and we're hopefully in two weeks we'll have Tim Frank, uh, of the Vice President of Communication for the NBA, on the show to explain it more. But they're not adding any other games. They're just going to play their games, and they're, it's the regular season games. Now, I don't know how they're going to schedule. And then after that, they're going to play the semifinals, which will be a game which you wouldn't play, and then a, and then a final. So the, the only the championship game is that 83rd game. So it's going to be no change to the schedule, really. The question is, will the teams play? Because some of these will be like back-to-back games in November and December trying to add some excitement to it. I don't know. I think the NBA even themselves don't know what it's going <laughs> to feel like, but they're trying to add, I think if the season goes on for so long, they're trying to add some sort of excitement into this. And I guess force guys to play. You know if you're buying a ticket for, for a Tuesday night in, you know, four months before the for the game, I'm probably going to get to see stars I found stars it interesting. Here. They said it's only going to be Tuesday and Friday night games, which is November and December, which is not NFL college football season, or yeah. NFL. So they're smart. They're trying to add some juice to the middle of the of the week, which I like that aspect of it because I hate nothing I hate more than Sunday NBA basketball games when who was going to watch an NBA game in December when you have NFL games on or even Saturday games when I'm watching the college football. Yeah, it's like week 13. Like I got these games are important. <laughs> um, Wimbledon's underway as we said you've been watching pretty much every match and so where do we stand right now well we're bad we started 128 players in each draw men and women now we're down to only eight so eight men and eight women and in the american the american men we, it's weird. And Michael Minot um, had a huge upset. He beat the number 11 seed, FAA, and then they lost the next round. Isner, who's this long-term great American, is sort of like at the end of his career. He lost the first round. Mackenzie McDonald uh, lost, and then Max Kresge and Corda lost. The two players who were expecting a lot, Ben Shelton, who's from Florida, who is seated 32nd, he won his first set in five, first match in five sets, but then lost in his second. Like, I was hoping for him to run. And Taylor Fritz, who I think on, in my eyes and other people, was like, he is going to have a huge deep run. He, his first match won five sets, and then he lost to a nobody in the second match. Um, Tommy Paul was another player, number seated at number 16. He won his first and, and, and set their second matches, but then lost in, a, in his third match. So, really, nothing happen in terms of those Americans. The surprise and surprise of surprise is TFO then. So TFO, who 
a lot of people had, he's going to win this tournament. He won his first match, won his second. In the third round, he's like talking, he's going to go to the finals. He plays Dimitrov, and who's a very good 33-year-old. He's going to name Baby Fed. He's supposed to be Federer, and they've never really been coming. But great grass court player. Lost two, three, and two. In like, and, and it was just unbelievable. Like You're watching the match. You're like, what happened to DFO? Why is he playing so poorly? Um, and that was sort of, the, so then we're going to get to the one American left in a second. But uh, the other upset was the number four seed, Casper Ruud, lost in the second round. That was to, a, to an English player, Leon Brody. So that was huge. And everyone in England loves their English players. And Tsitsipas, who is dating Paula Bordeaux, not one of another player. So now this is the one of, he's dating one of the top women's players and he's top men's player. It's a big story. But he beat the former uh, US Open champion Dominic Thiem in the first match in five sets, five-fifth set tiebreaker. And then the second match, it was this is a major match. He played Andy Murray. Andy Murray, of course, won, won Wimbledon twice, the favorite of England. Everyone liked him. And that went five that went up to five sets and he beat him in five sets. So he had these two emotional five sets over a couple days, but then he ended up losing today, and the player he lost to was Christopher Eubanks, who is the story of the tournament. Christopher Eubanks is 27 years old from Atlanta. He played at Georgia Tech. He really was someone who, for the last five years, was just in the challenger circuit, never played in Wimbledon, tried to play in qualifiers. So he wasn't like he was great when he's young, then he just sort of lost it, and then he became good. He just was never really that good. He was becoming more of a television commentator. But he said being a commentator helped him understand the match. I thought he was great as a commentator and helped him win. And this year I saw Miami. He played better. He actually made it to the quarterfinals. And he's a year ago he was 190th in the world. And now he's in the final eight. He upset Tsitsipas in five sets. He beat Cameron Norrie in the second match of another English player in four sets. He has just been amazing to watch. He's fun to watch. This is unheard of that a player of... I guess his, you know, he has just been so, and he, he's a good friend of Coco Goff, so he spends a lot of time here in South Florida, but the fact that he made the quarters is great. Now he plays Medvedev next, and all Medvedev has done is not a great grass court player, but he's played four unseated players, easy wins, dropped one set, so we'll see what happens, and then in two days he has plays Medvedev. The other um, quarterfinals is Holger Rune and Carl Zakaraz. Now, I told Mike here, I said, bet the house, he, Mike does not, is homeless now, he sold his car, I said, Berrettini from Italy is a grass court, you know, he's a maven, he knows what to do, he made it to the finals, he's going to beat Alcaraz, first said he won 6-3, I said, whatever, it's, you know, take your parents' house, sell that house too, and he ended up losing, so I was wrong on that, but Alcaraz won, is now, looks great, even though he has, this is really his own first run through, he's 20 years old, and Holgarun is also 20 years old, now they've split, they've only played twice, they've split, they're going to play in two days. Um, Hogarun uh, won the third round and he won in five sets. And then in the fourth round, he beat Dimitrov, the person who beat TFO. So that's really the first hot top of the draft is Rune and Alcaraz. Going to be exciting. Medvedev, Eubanks. Eubanks is a huge underdog in this, but that's all he's been doing the whole tournament. And then in the bottom half of the draw is Yannick Sinner, who last year went to and almost had was up two sets of Djokovic in the quarterfinals, almost beat Djokovic and, uh, from Italy. He's 21 years old. He, is, he hasn't played anybody. He has four unseated players. He's made it at the quarterfinals. And now he plays another unseated player, a Russian, Ramut Suflin, who is really out of nowhere also. So really, it looks like Sinner is going to walk right into this semifinals without playing anyone. Djokovic, on the other hand, has had... He had to play Stan Wawrinka, who is, Stan Wawrinka has won three majors. He's been tremendous. And he's someone who is like 37 years old, who is just one of the toughest, hardest players. And that third set he had against uh, Djokovic was awesome. Jo Wawrinka was up 5-3 in the tiebreaker. And Djokovic just, it was like, they were going to either have to come back the next day. And Djokovic just won four straight points, just the four of the most amazing points. And then in the fourth round, he had to play Hubert Hercas. He 
won the first set, 7-6, 7-6 in tiebreakers, which Djokovic was down in both tiebreakers. Hercotch had not been broken in 67 straight games and does just amazing, like serving, tremendous game. And he came out today then to play. He lost the third set and then he went up winning and Djokovic won the fourth set. So it sets up a match against Rublev from Russia. So in the other quarter. So it's been, I know I went through those pretty fast, but it's going to be Djokovic, Rublev, like Joker to win that against Sinner, which is going to be great. And then whole room versus Alcaraz. I think Akraz will win, and then it gets either Medvedev or Eubank. So it's maybe shaking up like Djokovic or Akraz. But I love this week. I love the tennis. It's been great. Amazing tournament. It's 746. You're listening to Ira on Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. You can follow Ira anywhere on social media at Ira on Sports. You want to catch us up on the women's side? Yeah. I mean, clearly the big thing in the women's is that Coco Goff, seated number seven. She's only 19 years old, but she ended up losing in the first round to Sophia Kennan, who, this is what I hate about the draws, Sophia Kennan was one of the top You four, picked this one correctly. Well, four players in the world, and, and to, to make Coco play her in the first round is ridiculous, just because the player's injured and comes back, and everyone knows, I mean, that's where I thought that was that was a tough, tough. it was a terrible draw for them. But the Americans did terrible. Venus, look, Venus is it's just as great that she's out there playing. She lost 6-4, 6-3 in the first round, but they had another like six other players lost early in the first round. Some lost to Daniel Collins and Sloan Stevens lost in the second round. Um, but the two Americans that have made the quarters, Mass and Keys, what a match. She's the 27th seed. She's 27 years old, but she had, she's been, just had easy matches. And then she played Mira Andriva. Mira Andriva is 16 years old and she just turned 16. To think that she's out there playing and she was up 6-3-4-1 and Keys came back and won. And they're like, well, that shows Andriva's immaturity. Immaturity, she's only 16. <laughs> Like, she can't drive yet. You can't get too much more mature than that. She's out of nowhere. She was born in Siberia. Like, that's the craziest thing. So now Keys is in the quarterfinals. And Jessica Bakula, who has made four of the last six majors, she's made the quarterfinals, not made the semifinals. She's the one. She's the daughter of the owner of the Buffalo Bills. She's 29 years old. And so this is, you know, she's exciting that she's now in the quarter. So the quarters are going to be Bakula is going to play Vondorosa, a player from Czechoslovakia, and Owens Jabor, who's cruised through four matches. She's been in the finals of Wimbledon in the U.S. Open. She's from Tunzania. She's the sixth seed. She'll play Rybikina, who's last year's Wimbledon champion, and uh, that'll be in the other quarter. And then the bottom half of the draw, Keys will play um, Sabalinka, who won this year's Australian Open and all that. So it, it is... I like, I mean, for the women's draw, for Bakula and for Keys, it'll be exciting to see if one of those two Americans can get through to the finals or actually meet in the finals, which they possibly can. But this has been great. I Next year, I'm at Wimbledon. Let's um, switch over to golf now. Sepp Straka, reigning Honda Classic champion, got another win at the John Deere. And Ira, this field was not the most impressive I've seen. I'll tell you what, Sepp's great. He picks the right tournaments. He went to the Honda and won that and went in this one and he shot 62. I'm looking up there I'm like, wait, is this over? And he shot a 62 and it was done like two hours before and just sat and just said, I won the won the thing. I'm like, you're waiting for the other golfers to pass him, but uh, but no. Great he double bogeyed uh, 18 too. He could have <laughs> shot 59. So that was so a good win for Sepp Straka. Uh, as I said, now he's a two-time winner in, in, in the year on the tour. What about Liv? Because I know you're getting excited because, you know, this is kind of leading up to the British Open. Well, in two weeks, the British Open, Cam Smith's going to win it. He won it last year. He's going to win it again. He shot 15 under. This is unbelievable. Like, I mean, he's not going to be the favorite. You know Rom's going to be ahead of him. And uh, Rory and all the everyone's going to be. I'm looking at the odds. Cam Smith will win the British Open. That one I'm sure about. Um, I, that's the, it, it, um, Tyler Gooch was finished 21st. Brooks finished 17th. Bryson 11th. DJ was 10 under. So I think. And Patrick Reed. 
I'm telling you, this is another player that I think people are sleeping on is Patrick Reed. He finished second. He was one shot back, and no one wants to bet. Nobody bets on Patrick Reed, and he's going to be like 50 to 1 at the British Open. Here's another player I would put money on. What's going on with Brooks Kepka and Matthew Wolf? Because they're, they're teammates on live, and there was kind of a, a blow up over this past Remember, week. Remember, Matthew Wolf in 2019 was the number one college player in the world, and then he and then he won the Shriners in Vegas. He's the only player besides Tiger and Ben Crenshaw to have done that. So when you're when you're listed with Tiger and maybe Ben Crenshaw as the only ones, he was in 2020 the fourth in the PGA Championship, and then he was the second in the U.S. Open. Remember, he led the U.S. Open, and then Bryson catched him there, but he's going into the fourth round. So. He was great, and then he just stopped playing well in 21-22, goes to live, and has been a disaster on the live. The last five events, he's been 41st, 45th, 30th, withdrew, 44th, and 47th. And there's only, what, 50-some golfers, so it's not very good at all. And Brooks, I love this. I mean, this is what makes team golf fun. People say, well, this is why we don't like team golf. He says, when you quit on your round, you give up and stuff like that, that's not competing. I'm not a big fan of that. You don't work hard. It's very tough. It's very tough to have team dynamic when you've got one guy that won't work, one guy's not going to give any effort. He's going to quit on the course, break clubs, get down, has bad body language. It's very tough. I've basically given up on it. And then Matthew Wolf says, oh, come on, don't give up on me, and stuff like that. And so people are saying, well, that's what, I think this is great. That's good drama. Like, this is what's so fun about the team golf concept. So I think that actually, the fact that the national media reported this so much, it's like some live reporting. And I think you will, I am, I might be the only person on earth that I do think team golf is going to work. Like, I do think people find this sort of interesting. We love the Ryder Cup. And we love the Ryder Cup, and, and I think that's why it's going to work with that. So that's this whole thing with Liv in terms of the London match and then Brooks bashing Matthew Wolf. Matthew Wolf too, moved to Jupiter and then left, moved out of Jupiter because there wasn't enough party scene for him. So went back to, he lives in his college town, hanging out with, like, that kind of shows maybe where your head's at, you know, you know Remember, a little bit. during the pandemic, he played in that tournament they had at Seminole. He was one of the four golfers they had, one of those made-for-TV tournaments when there was no yeah. events going on, and he was inviting people, like, why is he invited there? And he's the one with the, the tee, the, his uh, driver. Weird hitch in his swing. The weird hitch in a swing that is whatever. But, uh, no, I, I think, I actually think it's great, the fact that you would have these team golf like that. Uh, the U.S. Women's Open took uh, took on Pebble Beach. Allison Corpus, first American to seven years to win win that. Also, Michelle's Weiss, her, I think her last tournament that she played in. And your boy Jay Monahan. I'm just waiting day by day for this guy to get let go. Well, tomorrow they're going to testify in Congress. Still, nobody understands what the merger is. Like, this is a, like people are trying to say, I don't understand the in-season NBA tournament. Well, we have better clarity on the NBA in-season tournament than we said, who is running golf? What's going on with Liv? What's happening with anything? And they're going to testify before Congress. Monaghan, who has been out on medical leave, but it says I'm coming back. Well, it happens to be conveniently after they have to testify in Congress. So it's on Monday, next Monday. He's back at work. But on Tuesday, they'll be testifying. So Everyone's with bated breath, like waiting. You don't want to be telling your members what you're doing when you have to watch C-SPAN to find out what they're doing. Like this, again, the communication, and this is why the golfers went to live in the first place. It's like they're part of an organization that won't that they don't control, that you have certain people. The head of um, a former AT&T chairman of the board left, just resigned from the PGA board because he doesn't like the merger with Liv. But it seems like everybody's in the dark. Monahams, Monahams called every shot on this with Jimmy Dunn, and now then he took a month out. This is chaos, but again, it'll be it'll be interesting tomorrow to see exactly how this is going to work out because PGA keeps saying we're in charge, but I keep saying this is Liv is going to be running. I mean, this, the Saudi I assume is going to be running this because they're putting all the money up for it. 
And, you know, we got a couple of months of golf here left, but it, there's really not many primetime events that we, we've got. This week is a weird. It's a Barbasol in Kentucky, then the Genesis, then, of course, the British Open, the two other events, and then you have the FedEx Cup, the three matches. So I think the PGA is just trying to get through this to then figure out what yeah. to do. So they're trying to just hang on. Uh, but the British Open in two weeks, I love that tournament. I love getting up at three in the morning and watching those the field and everything. So I'm excited. It'll be the last major of the year. Uh, how about a uh, little Formula One action? Well... I'll tell you what, they had almost a half a million people at Silverstone over three days. It's the oldest F1 race. Verstappen won again. He's now won eight out of ten races. But McLaren, which is super popular, if you go to any Formula One, it's all the orange. Everybody's wearing orange. It's the popular. Lando Norris is one of the most popular drivers, maybe even more popular than Hamilton Verstappen. He ended up, McLaren, the first day on Friday in practice was terrible. They've been terrible all year. Slow cars. Suddenly, whatever they did, rocket fuel, Red Bull, whatever they put in there, <laughs> monster. They the cars started going great and he ended up qualifying well and then he finished in second place and Piastri his teammate finished in fourth place and uh, and uh, and Hamilton actually made the the podium and also finished in third it was it was a Verstappen and it was close the difference between Verstappen and Norris was was fairly close so it was the whole race was super exciting and uh, you look the the red I mean uh, Red Bull is going to run away Verstappen is just unstoppable winning eight out of ten races. But the idea is that you really believe that they're going to, at the end, you're going to get, uh, um, you're going to, they're getting, the, it's getting closer. Do you want to talk about a weird interaction that Brad Pitt had? Bro, Brad Pitt is there, but Cara Del, Del Vigny is a nice well, okay. name. So the thing about I love, I, I scream, I love Martin Brundle is famous. He goes on the walks right down and, and right before the race, and the, the the cars are out there. Now you don't really get to do this in any other sport where you actually are talking to everyone. These guys are getting in. Like Matthew Verstappen was like a minute before getting in a car driving two hundred some miles an hour. Is like, yeah, well, I hope it's going a good race. That stuff. Like you, it's like amazing how they talk. But anyway, they have celebrities there, and now Brad Pitt is filming this race movie. And if you think about James Garner was in Grand Prix. There was another um, uh, Rush was a big uh, Formula movie. Brad Pitt, this is going to be, uh, supposedly it's going to be phenomenal. They actually filmed it right at Silverstone. They were running the cars while the after, before and after the race. So I'm excited to see this. Pitt gave this great interview. And then this Cara Devloni, I wish I don't know how to pronounce her name so well. So Brundle comes up to him and says, just ask questions. And she's like, I can't, her, her advisors around her said, she can't talk. She can't say anything. And they're like, well, you should talk. Like you're supposed to be on fit row. Just say you're happy to be she refused to even answer those questions and then I was like I wonder what we're going to say in the media and you go on the media and everyone is bashing her like don't go in the don't be there if you're not going to talk to Martin Brundle like they, it's like that's what he does he walks around if you're going to be celeb and you're going to walk you can sit in your box but if you come down right where the cars are he's going to ask questions just answer say I'm so excited to be here this is great this is super exciting and Sam Ryder is a musician he was there he's like oh my god this is the highlight of my life getting interviewed by Martin Brundle so like again it was like I just loved the beginning of the race. Anybody who gets to watch Formula One, you don't have to watch the race. Just watch Martin Rondo walking up <laughs> and trying to interview celebrities. What about uh, NASCAR? I just think the thing about NASCAR is that William Byron Byron won in Atlanta, and they put it on USA Network on Sunday nights. I that's where I think they're lost. Like people are flipping around their channels. I think USA is a bad network to, to be put on. They don't have NBC Sports anymore. But to put like you only have one NASCAR event that the main event to put on USA on a Sunday night. I thought that was bad. yeah USA. You don't hit your your wagon to that. Um, UFC, we had a good card this weekend, and you were excited about it. 
Wow. I mean, I'm texting you the whole night. Like, I mean, this is, it was one, Dan Hooker was against Jalen Turner. Hooker broke his arm. They, and when I mean broke his arm, they showed after the match, he went and, and said, look, and he had an x-ray. His arm was broken. And he won 29-28. He's being interviewed at the fight. He goes, I think I hurt my arm a little bit. I think you hurt it. There, there's no, his arm is in two. Like, talk about being tough. And then the middleweight fight, Drikas Duplassus was from South Africa, has this weird style. And he was fighting against a, a legend, Robert Whitaker, former champion. And uh, Duplassus said, I'm going to win in two rounds and he won in two rounds like he called it now he's going to fight Israel Adesama who is one of the top two or three fighters and that Adesama who comes out of the from the stands in his street clothes walks in and starts challenging the plaza right then and there they're yelling and screaming at each other so that's going to be a great fight the flyweight title fight was uh, Alexandra Pantoja against the champion Brandon Marino amazing fight back and forth pounding each other anybody likes you see thought it was like one of the best fights they've seen and it was weird at the end because I thought Pangeo had won but he was like jumped on he had Marino Marino didn't fight out and the question is what are they going to do on the fourth and fifth rounds when Pangeo seemed to be controlling it but really nothing was happening and they actually gave the they turned the belt so that was sort of controversial but it was still a victory and then the title fight Alexander Volkanovski beat Yair Yair Rodriguez Rodriguez Joe's and it's like someone who's just spinning Dervish with all his feet flying in the air and just kicking, kicking, kicking. And Voltanaga was so just a the great style in terms of fighting that and ended up winning that. He's considered uh, pound for pound either one or two at UFC. So from the beginning to end, that's what I hate about boxing. What I love about the UFC is I got to see four good, really good matches where you go to boxing, you're just like waiting for the main event to come on. So that was really what's good about UFC. We've got like a minute left here, Ira. Um, who works at ESPN these days? Because they have some rounds of layoffs all the time, but this last layoff round was massive. It's someone like me who watches sports all the time, and you're saying you're missing out like a college football. David Pollock, does, he's a great Georgia star. He does a phenomenal job. They laid him off. Gene Wojciechowski, who tells those great stories about the thing, he's out. Todd McShay, who we see with Mel Kuyper McShay and, and, and broadcasting, he was laid off. I, ESPN Radio, I mean, there's no ESPN Radio anymore. They, they laid off Max Kellerman, Keyshawn Johnson, Jason Fitz, and Jordan Cornette, who does all their radio shows. And then the NFL, like, you know, Monday night, Susie Kobler, I thought, fantastic. She's with yeah, Lake Steve Young, who's former NFL Hall of Famer, I thought was excellent on that, doing that Monday night. He was laid off. And then the NBA. Now, I don't like Jeff Van Gundy. I don't like but I mean, he was he does a good job, though. But everyone thought, I mean, he's been doing it for like last 15 years as, as their lead announcer. He was laid off. And Jalen Rose was laid off. So it really is. That's a question. You asked a very good question. And they're saying, well, they hired Pat McAfee for $20 million a year. So you had up everyone's contract. And I'm not a big fan of Pat McAfee. So I think that was the one thing about it. But I, I I think there are changes that ESPN's making, and this is going to present opportunities for other uh, sports things like Iron Sports to sort of go into it because people, I think this is, I don't know where these people are going to go, but I, I like the fact that ESPN's sort of downsizing. I feel bad for these these stars because I, I, I listen to them. I appreciate their opinions. Maybe we'll get some of them on our show. Yeah, these weren't layoffs due to talent. These people are fantastic at their jobs. This is financial. David Pollock was great. I mean, he worked so hard, and I thought he was great. And I think game day was, to me, that game day experience and with Lee Corso and Herb Street and Pollock and, and Desmond Howard. That was tremendous. And and why would they gut three of the, to at least two of the people that are key to that is crazy. And the ratings of it through the roof. None of this, I think a lot of this makes no sense at all. Ira, what are you up to this week? Um, I'm not sure. Maybe some baseball, but eventually, but definitely going to watch Wimbledon every day. We are out of time. Thank you so much to Brian Hoke for stopping by. He's Ira and Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. It's Ira on Sports.